in our possession. Stewardship has many meanings, not only as far as money is concerned. The Bible paints a much broader picture. In the Old Testament, we had the account of how that God's people expressed their stewardship when they rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. And in the New Testament, stewardship is displayed not only in the proper use of money, but the proper use of our own time and our own possessions and our own talents. I remember some time ago of reading the parable that Jesus fed the five, not the parable, but the account of Jesus feeding the 5,000 when he fed from a small lad's lunch. And the application was made and I firmly believe in this, that in the proclamation on the fulfillment of the Great Commission, that how as the child of God is commissioned to proclaim his gospel throughout all the world, through Jerusalem and Judea and from the uttermost parts, that God has chosen two methods or two instruments by which to do this. As we had the story of the feeding of the 5,000, the Lord Jesus used two things. He used material possessions and human instruments by which to do this. Now, as far as the human instruments are concerned, preachers are called to preach. Missionaries are called to the mission field. And someone has to furnish the stuff. Now that's our privilege here, and something that I believe very much of, of being a proper steward of those possessions that God has placed in our hands. God has furnished much of his work to his people. A child of God is a steward of God. 1 Corinthians 4.1 tells us that we are stewards of the mysteries of God. And the second verse in that particular chapter also says that the steward is to be found faithful. And we can go further into the scriptures in 1 Peter 4.10 that God has placed us and challenged us to be good stewards of the grace of God. And the question for me, and I dare say the question for all of us, how good are we as stewards? him. We have the familiar account regarding our tithe. And I don't think there's any question in our own minds as to what denotes the tithe. It's a simple 10%. The gift is beyond that. Malachi 3, 8 through 10 gives us that familiar account that we are to bring the tithe into his storehouse. And from the windows of heaven, God will shower upon us a blessing that we cannot really contain. I can remember back to that time before I became a Christian and worshiping in the First Baptist Church of Leakesville, North Carolina. There came a time as far as a pledge was concerned 
And I thought that it was really great that I decided to increase my pledge at that particular time from $2 a week to $2.50 a week. Well, that was really great in my own mind. But God changed that shortly thereafter when I saw that this wasn't really the way. That first of all, I had to give myself to the Lord. And then he would take care of the money aspect as far as my life was concerned. I also remembered shortly after that a very wonderful account of how I was committing the possessions. So saying that I was worshiping in a Baptist church and they are firm believers in baptism by immersion. And I was assisting the, the pastor in the immersion baptism of a real close friend of mine who had recently become to know the Lord and as he was getting ready to enter into the baptismal pool. I saw him and I saw that he had his billfold in his back pocket. And I says, don't you want me to hold your billfold? He said, oh no, I want that baptized also. <laughs> and I thought that was a very good practical illustration of how that we are to certainly to yield our all to him and we have our church budget, which is coming before us next Sunday. Well, I've had the opportunity to look over that budget, and I see no fat in it. And it's our Jerusalem. It's our Jerusalem to furnish the stuff, the wherewithal, by which to proclaim his gospel from the ministry, from this portion of God's vineyard that we'd have. The grace of giving. 2 Corinthians 8.5 tells us that first they gave themselves to the Lord. And that's what the child of God needs to do is to give himself to the Lord. And one other illustration that I read recently that is told by a missionary in West Africa. Told about this lady that came to the services that particular day that they were having special services. And that she brought a coin that was worth about a dollar. Now, that was when a dollar did have some value to it. But he knew that this lady had never been able to contribute to the church services or to the work there. And he questioned it, perhaps that she had come of this coin somewhat illegally. But he didn't want to embarrass her during the service, so he waited to after the services. And he asked about it. And she said that she had never been able to give anything to the work of the Lord. But 50 years prior to that, that she had accepted Jesus Christ and that he had saved her from her sin. And all that he had done from her, she had never been able to even contribute even a dozen eggs toward the services. And so she wanted to do something for the Lord. So she sold herself to a plantation for, as a slave for life for one dollar. And that was the coin that she gave. She gave herself to the Lord. And that's what we need to do. Our hearts will overflow for the love of Christ, for all that he's done for us. And we can only grow in the grace of giving as we first give ourselves to him. You can give without loving. But I say that you cannot love without giving. Thank you.
handed them down to us, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you might know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. In the days of the king of Judea, Herod, there was a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. And they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. And now it came to pass, while he was performing his priestly service before God, in the appointed order of the division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right hand of the altar of incense. And Zacharias was troubled when he saw him, and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John, and you will have the joy and the gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will drink no wine or liquor. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while he is yet in his mother's womb, and he will turn back many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And Zacharias said to the angel, How shall I know this for certain? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which shall be fulfilled in their proper time. And the people were waiting for Zacharias, and were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And, they, and they kept, he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And it came about when the days of his priestly service were ended, he went back to his home. And after these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant. And she kept herself in seclusion for five months, saying, This is the way the Lord hath dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. May God bless to our understanding this important reading from his word. At six o'clock in the morning on the 20th of March, 1812, all of the city of Paris, France, was aroused by the booming of cannon. The Emperor Napoleon, the mighty conqueror, had put away one wife and had taken another while announcing, was announcing the birth of his child. Joyfully, the French people 
jumped out of bed, dressed themselves, and ran into the streets. They carefully listened to the count of the salutes of the cannon. Twenty-one salvos were to be fired if the baby was a girl, but one hundred if it were a boy. Nineteen times the cannon roared, then twenty, then twenty-one, and the whole city waited with bated breath, and then twenty-two. A mighty shout arose while the cannon boomed on. In a few hours, the whole French nation rejoiced that Napoleon had a son and that the dynasty of Bonaparte would live on and continue its conquest. How different was the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ, the world savior. His mother was crowded out of even an oriental inn. Her son was born in a stable, not a nation, not a city, not even a whole village heard the announcement of Christ's birth. Only a few shepherds in the fields outside of Bethlehem. And how different too the end of Napoleon's son and of Mary's. Bonaparte's heir died before he was of age, robbed of all power within five years after the cannon roared this welcome. Napoleon himself was a prisoner of war, stripped forever of all of his might and majesty. But Christ went from that cradle at Bethlehem to the world's greatest victory as he became the savior of our souls. When we stop to think how men consider things to be important, no, how, no matter how busy we are, we should stop and think about the meaning of the coming of Jesus Christ into the world. While all of us are deeply moved by the pathos of the situation of the blessed foster father of our Lord Joseph looking for a place for Mary, and while we think of the elderly people there in the temple who loved and worshipped God like Zacharias and his dear wife Anna, when we think of Simeon and old uh, Anna and Elizabeth and all of the others, our hearts are full. We realize that it was a poor welcome in some respects as far as the world counts welcomes, but it was a great welcome when you realize what God is doing. He works on a great scale, too big for men to understand. The world will little note, nor will it remember for any long time after a hundred years, what happens this week about the refugees in Iran, or who the Ayatollah Khomeini is, or what the Shah of Iran does, or what the President of the United States does. But what we do with Jesus Christ will determine our eternal destiny whether we really see to it that he is Lord and Savior of our lives as he was co has come into this world to be. So that's important for us to remember. Therefore, I can think of nothing that would be more beautiful for us to do as a congregation or you as a family than to begin to study again the first three chapters of the Gospel according to Luke, the first two chapters of the Gospel according to Matthew, and learn as much as you can about the coming of our Savior into this world. I've always loved the beautiful classical way in which Luke begins his record of the gospel. He was a physician. He was interested in keeping careful records. This week, my wife has been reading again some of the missionary correspondence letters that Dr. Nelson Bell wrote in the 1930s. 
And I've often wondered why it was that certain missionary biographies were easier and better to read. And I'm sure that the answer must be that dentists and physicians are responsible to keep very careful and accurate notes on the patients that they see. As a result of this, Luke, the beloved physician, would be careful uh, to record the things which he is going to report. And so when he begins his beautiful life of our Lord Jesus, he says, for as much as many have taken in, in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed amongst us, even as they delivered them unto us which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. And the word there is capitalized because that means the word who makes sense and reason. The word that became flesh and dwelt among us. Logos is the word there. And it is that word which Jesus came to make sense out of an irrational, senseless type of existence. And it's important for us to remember it. So, Luke says, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the first, to write unto thee in order, most excellent Theophilus. I've often wondered who Theophilus was. I think he was a real person. The word means lover of God. I think he might have been an inquirer. And because the words most excellent are used, maybe he was an important official. Maybe he was like an ambassador whom we refer to as the most excellent so-and-so or his excellency, the ambassador from such and such a country. At any rate, Luke is careful about what he writes and he wants him to know that what he is putting down is a matter of sober fact and history. That what we have in the Christian faith is not simply the beautiful words of Jesus, but we have the deeds and acts of Jesus connected there. So they are to demonstrate the power of God. Now when such a one is to come into the world, it had been predicted in the Old Testament that there would be one who should come before him. And even his birth is to take a great deal of the gospel according to Luke because Luke is fascinated with this figure of John the Baptist. And I want us this morning to look a little bit at this forerunner and see some things about him. Uh, we are told, first of all, about his parents, Zacharias and Elizabeth, an ancient godly priest named Zacharias, an old man who loved God and who served him faithfully. And doubtless he had prayed and prayed and prayed that God would give him the birth of a little child in their home. Far from the way in which modern Americans look upon children often as a curse, and damnable people enter into the sin of abortion and murder, you do not find that here. But you see here a reverence for life. It's instructive to me that our people from the Orient count life at conception. And a baby born is one year old. And here you see this life protected. Well, here you find this Zacharias and this Elizabeth, barren and childless, praying to God, and their prayers have not been answered. And if you have prayed for a long time for something and your prayer has been delayed, then God is telling you here, do not be discouraged. Here are people who prayed for a long time before their prayer was ever answered, and they were righteous, these two. They walked in the commandments of the Lord and were blameless, we are told, but still they had no child. And this, of course, hurt them deeply. And probably they had given up long ago on the 
even the idea that they would ever have a child. That's why this unusual thing takes place only once in a lifetime would Zacharias be allowed to go into the temple to offer that offering of incense. And yet at that time that he did, Gabriel, a special angel who comes with great dignity from the presence of God himself, comes to this old priest and speaks to him and tells him that God has heard his prayers. Long ago he's heard those prayers and God will bring answer to them. And so he finds it hard to believe. And when he expresses his difficulty at believing, the angel tells him that because of his lack of belief, he will not be able to speak until these things are accomplished. When he comes out from the inner part of the sanctuary, the crowd outside are waiting, but he cannot speak to the crowd, and he has to make signs. But the crowd knows that something tremendous has taken place inside that temple that he has evidently seen a vision of God, and they wonder what will transpire. Then he goes back to his home, and his wife Elizabeth conceives and bears a son, and that son is John the Baptist. And when John the Baptist is brought into the temple, and he is uh, uh, circumcised, at that presentation of John the Baptist in the temple, we have a song of Zechariah. You remember last Sunday when we saw the little baby Emily Elizabeth baptized? Uh, Eddie and Martha wanted children for so long and were so grateful for their baby and both of their children. Uh, well, you can imagine here when Zacharias makes a, a hymn, a canticle as our Catholic friends call it, uh, a benedictus. Uh, in which they use the first Latin word, blessed. He thanks God for what God has done in bringing this little boy, John, into the world. Because this boy is going to be the forerunner. And if you take the time to read that beautiful canticle, you will see that first of all, he thanks God that God has heard their prayers, that after 400 years uh, since a prophet has spoken, now God has indeed spoken. And something big is about to take place. And this forerunner is to come. God is going to deliver them from the oppression of their enemies. God is going to deliver them. But not in the way that many of them think. I have noticed in their prayer that they also speak of their deliverance from sin. And how will this man do it? He is called the preparer, the road maker, the one who will make the way for the Lord. It's a beautiful thing. When you stop to think about the highway of the Lord, and you stop to consider what all of this means, I used to ride over to a nursing home just about every Sunday afternoon when I went to go to Appalachian Hall. I had the great joy of taking Dr. A.A. A. McLean with me. And we were always commenting about Interstate 40. And he used to say to me, you may live to see this bridge completed, but I won't. He was thinking ahead, and he didn't have any regrets about it. He knew he would go and be with his Lord. And he wondered sometimes whether I'd even live to see some of it completed. <laughs> because I, I wasn't too well, and the bridge wasn't coming too fast anyway. And uh, he, we would joke about these things. Well, when a great highway goes through, a lot of people are disrupted. You would see houses that were just sheared half in two. 
you saw great chunks sliced out of mountains of people who had held property for years and years and their family had to be disrupted and a destructive thing had to take place before something constructive could come in. Well, that's the way it is with the ministry of John the Baptist. His ministry will be a ministry that is to prepare the way of the Lord in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy in Isaiah 40 and in Malachi 3 and 4. And so he comes preaching. And Luke, careful historian that he is, listen to the way he words it. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip tetrarch of Ituria, and of the region of Traconatus, and Licinius tetrarch of Abilene. How much more detail do you want? Uh, Annas and Caiaphas being the high priest, the word of God came unto John the son of Zacharias in the wilderness. John had grown up in the wilderness. He had grown up strong in the spirit of God. And he came into all the country about Jordan preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sin. These people wondered why it was that so long a period of time had passed, and yet God had not visited them. And John tells them, it's because of your sins, and you need to put your sins away. That it is, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be brought low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough way shall be made smooth. Those of us who have lived in the city of Edinburgh have marveled at the Royal Mile, a place made so that when the king and the, when the queen comes, uh, this place has been there for many, many years. Uh, when I used to be close to the President of the United States, it was always a very exciting thing to go to some meeting where he was going because always the Secret Service had to be there ahead of time with the advanced detail. And there would be people on top of roofs and buildings and traffic would be stopped and uh, people with radios would be at every entrance. These were advanced people preparing the way. And our Lord has one preparing the way for him. And that one prepares the way by preaching to these people a teaching of repentance. Then said he to the multitude that came forth to be baptized, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth fruits worthy of repentance. We have Abraham to your father, you say. But I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. When John came preaching, he preached in such a strict and severe way that he didn't allow the fact that these people would claim their Jewish heritage to get in the way of the fact that they ought to repent of evil that they were doing. He said, you may have Abraham's blood in your veins, but do you have Abraham's faith and obedience in your heart? This is what counts. And it does not do for us simply to say that we are Presbyterians who go back to John Knox or John Calvin or whoever else. It's whether or not we are placing our faith in the type of faith which they had in the Lord Jesus Christ which made a difference in the way in which they live that really counts. And this is what John wants them to know. And that's why he tells them that God is not impressed that they are Jews and sons of Abraham. 
He says, God's able to take these stones and raise up children to Abraham. That didn't go over too well with some of the Pharisees and some of the people who were leaders of the religious groups of that time. For John the Baptist's message was saying, watch out, the Lord is coming, and you better be ready when he gets here. Now then, it's interesting to see what these people say. I've often, I talked to Billy Graham the other night, and he said, what are you going to preach on? And I said, John the Baptist. And T.W. said, you can't say John the Presbyterian. But <laughs> T.W. can't say Jesus the Baptist either. Uh, <laughs> he can say Jesus the Nazarene if he wants to join the Nazarene. But uh, anyway, back here. Here, here, we, have, uh, here we have this uh, great thing that uh, he's able to raise up children to Abraham and also the axe is already laid at the root of the trees and every tree therefore that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the multitudes were questioning him saying, what shall we do? Now then, for all of the people who think that these hell, fire, and brimstone preachers do not have a social message, listen. And he would answer them and say, let the man who has two coats share with him who has none. Did you know John the Baptist said that? <clears throat> let the man who has two coats share with him who has none. Let him who has food do likewise. And some of the tax gatherers, it's interesting that the tax gatherers, the publicans, got a good hearing from Jesus and also John the Baptist is sympathetic with them. And the tax gatherers also came to be baptized and they said, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what you have been ordered to do. We think the IRS is tough today. But back in that day and time, uh, they had a certain fixed amount that they were to collect for Rome and then after that anything more that they could get was theirs. And so these renegades who had been Jews and sold out to the Roman government were greatly despised by the people. And yet these outcasts came to hear John the Baptist and when they wanted to repent, he permitted them to repent and be baptized, but he wanted them to do works that showed that they were repenting. It's not enough to claim that you've got faith in Jesus Christ. It ought to be demonstrated by the way in which we live. So he says to them, collect no more than what you have been ordered to. And then some soldiers came and they questioned him and said, what about us? What shall we do? And he said, do not take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely and be content with your wages. There's a tremendous social consciousness to what John the Baptist with his stern message of repentance and judgment has to say. Soldiers, as our poor refugee family knows only too well, after having gone through Cambodia and Thailand, can abuse their authority and power because they have a gun. And here, John the Baptist is saying to people who have been mean, if you want to repent and be baptized unto repentance and have your sins forgiven, then you're going to have to produce fruits that show that you have repented and that your lives have been changed. Now the people were in a state of expectation and they were all wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he might be the Christ. And John answered and said to them, As for me, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, 
and I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals, he himself will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And his winnowing fork is in his hand to clean out his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now get this. And so with many other exhortations, preached he the good news to the people. Now do you think that's good news? <laughs> that's the gospel. And that's a part of the gospel. And that's good news. Good news sometimes has a negative side. Before you can build the interstate highway, you have to tear a lot of things up. And before you're going to get right with the Lord, you've got to get rid of some things in your life. Bishop Arthur Moore came to Columbia Seminary when I was a student there years ago and spoke to our student body. The blessed old saint of God in the Methodist Church, and I'll never forget Arthur Moore, telling about repentance and what God had done in his life. And you know what he said made the biggest impact? He was working in a railroad yard where he was a mechanic who fixed locomotives. And when he got converted, the shop foreman noticed that all manner of tools began to be returned to the storeroom at the shop. And he knew that Arthur Moore had evidently been mightily saved. And that's a very good thing to remember. That's exactly what John is saying here. So we prepare uh, for the Lord. We prepare for his coming. We are ready for his coming because we wish to give our lives over to his lordship. There's a lot of encouragement here because John is saying it's not too late to repent, that there's hope. And that's a good thing to remember, that it's not too late. I have people all the time who tell me it's too late. I can't repent, but you can if you're hearing my voice, you're not dead. You can repent. You can give your heart to the Lord and you can give it to him today. But it demands action. And John wants us to remember that. And it demands action that's careful, like the action that we've taken in trying to help our friends here in the community who have come to us and other action that we try to do in witnessing for the Lord. When saw we thee hungry and naked and sick and in prison? and did not minister unto thee. Do you remember our Lord Jesus bringing that up? I hope you take home and look carefully at the little poem in the bulletin and put it in your Bible next to Matthew 25. I was hungry and you formed a humanities club and discussed my hunger. Thank you. I was in prison and you crept off quietly and prayed for my release. I was naked and in your mind you debated the morality of my appearance. I was sick and you knelt and thanked God for your help. I was lonely and you left me alone to pray for me. You seem so holy and so close to God, but I'm still very hungry and lonely and cold. So where have your prayers gone? What does it profit a man to page through his book of prayers when the rest of the world is crying out for his help? We need to help. And at this Christmas time, when so much of our giving is simply giving that is spent on people who really do not need a lot of the things that we buy, so much junk, why shouldn't we think through a gift that we might give to Jesus? And a gift given to the poor in his name is a gift that goes in the right direction, and it's one that can bring honor to him. He will have full authority, this Jesus who comes, and his power will be to save us.
The message is good news. It's good news because he has brought us specific things to do, to be generous, to be kind, to be faithful to him. And it's good news because John the Baptist doesn't just scold them. He gives them something to do for the Lord, and then he points beyond himself to the Savior. You remember when he pointed to Jesus, the one who paid the price for our sins? He said, Behold the Lamb of God who taketh away the sins of the world. And when John's disciples came and said, Everyone is following Jesus, John said the most beautiful words that you'll ever see a preacher saying, He, He, Jesus, He must increase and I must decrease. Isn't that a wonderful thing to think about at Christmas? He must increase and I must decrease. That's the part of the message of this great forerunner of our Savior. We will omit the closing hymn and let us stand for our prayer. Our Heavenly Father, the message that we've had is a bigger message than the preacher has been able to get across. So we need the ministry of the Holy Spirit to help us, to help us to see what is right and what is wrong in life and to obey that which is right no matter what it costs. Help us to know your love and to share your love with everyone. Help us to know your grace and your goodness. We thank you that Jesus came and we thank you that his blessed forerunner was so good to yield himself up to the Lord Jesus in service to him. We thank you for Jesus' estimate of him. And we bless you that we can remember him this day. We pray that you will help us like him to be faithful and true to Jesus Christ. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father in the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, our keeper and our guide, be and abide with us all, both now and forevermore.